Hello, I'm William Bell with Fulfilled Radio, a voice you can trust. Welcome to Probing the Prophets with Rod MacArthur. Join us every Friday from 11 a.m. until 12 noon Central Standard Time for an exciting adventure through the prophets with Rod MacArthur. Rod MacArthur, husband, father, grandfather, gardener of roses and veggies, Bible student, enamored of the prophets since 1972, hosts a discussion 40 years in the making. Currently living in Auburn, Washington, Rod has preached in Moscow, Idaho, Spokane, Washington, and Terre Haute, (coughs) Indiana, before moving to Auburn. Welcome to Probing the Prophets with Rod. Good morning. Happy New Year. 2013 underway. This is Rod. I'm sitting in my office here in the the comfy nook of my house in Auburn, Washington. Wishing you all the best and getting ready to uh, go into a further study of the book of Ezekiel with you. I'm going to do something I've never done before, and I hope we do it correctly. Uh, I have a caller on the line, and I'm going to start with the caller. After I give some contact information, I'd love for you to uh, contact me directly, uh, ask your questions, uh, send encouragement to Rod underscore MacArthur, R-O-D underscore M-A-C-A-R-T-H-U-R, all one chain, at Comcast.net. Our church website can be found at www.churchofauburn, again, all one chain, churchofauburn.com. Love to have you visit, and you can contact me through that address as well, so Give me a call, or give me a, drop me a line. Uh, your questions, your encouragements, uh, your comments, your suggestions, all of them would be gladly welcome. Now I'm going to go try to take this call. Oh, they just hung up. Ah, bummer. All right, call back. I'm here, ready to take your call. Love to talk with you. But <clears throat> we're going to press into the uh, the prophet Isaiah, uh, Ezekiel a little bit of a uh, little bit of review going on here <clears throat> as we <coughs> oh I'm so sorry <clears throat> as we uh, pick up our study of the book of Ezekiel we covered chapters 20 and 21 last week you remember in chapter 20 uh, a group of the elders of Israel in captivity came to Ezekiel I think it's important that we always keep in our mind that Ezekiel is in the captivity of Babylon with his fellow uh, Jerusalemites and Judeans. He's there. They don't want to be there. They think they're going back. And so a a cadre of elders have come to inquire of him. And he gave, God said, you know, I'm not going to, I'm not going to have them ask me anything. They rebelled against me in Egypt, he said in verse five, but I didn't. I withheld my anger for their my name's sake. That's verse 9. They rebelled against me in the wilderness. But again, uh, in verse 10, but again in verses 14 and 17, I withheld my hand for my name's sake. My eye spared them. Then their children rebelled against me in the wilderness, he said in 21. So um, I spared them for my name's sake, he said in 22, but I swore that I was going to scatter them in verse 23. So then he said in verse 27, your fathers rebelled against me in the land. So shall I be inquired of by you? By no means. But nevertheless, verse 33, very important, I will be your king. I will be your king. Though um, through an outstretched hand and a mighty, well, a mighty, mighty hand and outstretched arm, I will be king over you. So what you have in mind will not come to pass. What I have in mind will. I will be king over you. So he said in verse 34, I'll gather you back. I will regather you and be king over you. Of course, we understand that that regathering ultimately took place uh, just in the generation that followed Jesus. Then in chapter 21, Ezekiel 21, we had the cutting down of the trees representing 
the cutting down of the population of uh, Judah from the southernmost part to the northernmost part of Judah. Um, we saw Nebuchadnezzar coming in a vision, standing at, a, at the crossroads of would he go to Rabbah of the Ammonites or would he go to Jerusalem of the Judeans. So he did his divination and the divination come up for Jerusalem. That's verse 22. Then the prophet turned his attention to the sons of Ammon and said, Now don't you be cheering and hoorahing because as soon as I'm done with Jerusalem, I'm coming after you. That's basically what we covered in chapters 21. Uh, 20 and 21. Now let's take a look here in 22. I'm hoping we can do 22, 3, and 4, and the reason is because 25 starts a totally new section. Remember what we had in 21? Nebuchadnezzar at the parting of the way, should I go to Jerusalem? Should I go to Ammon? Indicating he's not just out to get Jerusalem. There's there's a full-scale invasion that he has in mind. It's just he's wondering which way to go first. And so, after Jerusalem, the surrounding nations, including uh, Ammon, Rabbah of, Rabbah of Ammon. And so, uh, chapter 25, beginning, <clears throat> we have the predictions of uh, the various nations, warnings against the various nations that surrounded Judah. So, we're going to try to cover this section today so we can start with a totally new sleet, or sheet, slate, there we go. Totally new slate next week. <clears throat> Chapter 22 is, uh, the content is seen in verse 2. And you, son of man, will, will you judge, will you judge the bloody city, then cause her to know all her abominations? Well, what made Ezekiel think he was going to judge the uh, the bloody city? Well, Yahweh did, that's, that's who. And so this chapter will be about making known her abominations, and what it would cost her to stay in them. In uh, verse 3, thus says the Lord Yahweh, a city shedding blood in her midst so that her time will come and that makes idols contrary to her interest for defilement. Here we have um, two things that he's going to focus on. He's going to focus on the murder, the, the, the bloodshed, and he's going to focus on the idolatry. Ironically, sometimes these two uh, were one and the same. Were one and the same. That is, that they would be murdering their children in uh, offer as a, as an offering, as a whole burnt offering to the pagan gods. And so they had the murder and the idolatry taking place at the same time. Uh, <clears throat> of course, the murder would be more than just that. Uh, anytime one departs from God, departs from the ways and the ethics of God, one leaves himself open to his own uh, beast inside, and, and that always turns ugly, uh, including uh, murder, rape, uh, plunder, uh, aggression, vandalism, and such. In anything that's an act of self-greed, uh, uh, self self-lust. So, he says... In uh, verse 4, you thus you have brought your day near and have come to your years. Please note that Ezekiel, Yahweh, places the full blame, the full blame on the people's choices. What's happening to you with the approach of Nebuchadnezzar is the consequent of your choices. Uh, it's a city, verse 5, full of turmoil and ill repute. Now, what we're going to look at in, in the next uh, little bit, uh, actually the next page and a half, is uh, a pointing a finger uh, of accusation, of, of blame, laying the blame where it belongs on the rulers, on the priests, on the prophets, and on the people. He's just going to highlight all those. But here he says the rulers in verse 6, the rulers of Israel, each according to his power, have been in the purpose in you for the purpose of shedding blood. So the rulers can do whatever they want to do by their power. Oh, it's not the right thing to do, but they have the power to do it, and so they do it. They have treated father and mother lightly within you. Now, this is not just the rulers doing this. This is the rulers setting the, uh, the, the uh, direction 
the ruler setting the uh, national mindset, as it were. And, and so I'm not going to read all of this, but here you've treated father and mother lightly. Consider Exodus 20, the Ten Commandments. Honor your father and your mother. And you've treated your father and mother lightly. So it's just a complete reversal of what God said to do. But worse than that, the reason God said to do it is because that's the way a nation stays healthy. Of the younger generation showing respect and honor to their parents, and by extension, to older people in general. Uh, we can read on down through the rest of this, uh, rest of this paragraph, but let me simply highlight it. Th these are the abominations that we read about in verse two. Here he's listing them, and so through the paragraph here, the bullet list of the things that are taking place: contempt for parents. Oppression of helpless, alien, orphan, widow. Number three, despising God, his Sabbaths, his holy things. Number four, slander that turns to murder. Number five, idolatry at the shrines. Number six, widespread sexual deviance. Number seven, bribes for murder, i.e., they're hiring hitmen. Uh, number eight, Greed, both in uh, extracting interest and taking profits uh, without regard to how they Im impact people. Number nine, oppression for profit. But worst of all, perhaps, or highlighting it all, number ten, you have forgotten me, declares the Lord Yahweh. So, in verse 13, he says, I smite my hand at your dishonest gain, which you have acquired in the bloodshed, which is among you. So here's a people intent on gratifying their own desires. Uh, they've forgotten God, forgotten his laws that govern their, their behavior toward one another. And so the society has turned bloody, has turned corrupt, has be become polluted. He says in verse 15, I will scatter you among the nations. I will dispense you through the lands, and I will consume your uncleanness from you. Now this is an important, a very important verse. I think, because what it says is this is not just God acting in a frenzied rage. How dare you disobey me, yada, yada, yada. Uh, as he's often depicted, that he just, God blew his top, blew up, and everybody got hurt. No, this is, this is purposed, this is tempered, this is intentional, this is directed toward a good goal. He says, I'm going to remove your uncleanness. This is the purpose, the, 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 point and purpose of this scattering was to purify, not for destruction, but for cleansing. And as a result, you'll know that I'm Yahweh. Now this phrase occurs so many times in the book that you really ought to take note of it, that God is acting here on behalf of his name. He's acting so people will know there is a Yahweh, I'm he, and, and you, you know the reality is you cannot be, you cannot possibly have uh, eternal life without knowing Yahweh. It's very important that he says, here I am, this is who I am, and take me as I am. All right. The son of, uh, in verse 18, he says, Son of man, the house of Israel has become dross to me. We don't use that word frequently, but it is the, um, the slag or it is the impurities that are removed as ore, especially precious metal ore, is purified. It's removed through the smelting process, the, where you have your blast furnace for steel. You have uh, other uh, smelting processes for things like gold or silver. And the slag or the dross, the, 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 it's the throwaway part. And he says, that's what Israel has become to me, the throwaway part, the impure slag, which is smelted off in the furnace. He says in 21, I will gather you and blow on you with the fire of my wrath, and you will be melted in the midst of it, i.e., purified. Purified through the fires of um, oppression, purified through the fires of siege, purified through the fires of invasion. Uh, this is what he's talking about. I will gather you and blow on you with the fire of my wrath. It's a smelting that, just like in verse 15 above, the scattering was to re remove uncleanness. 
So the smelting is to remove impurities. Uh, make her know her abominations, verse 2. Well, now we're going to remove those abominations. Now remember what Moses predicted and what Peter preached. In Acts 3, Moses predicted it in Deuteronomy. Peter preached it in Acts 3. Whoever will not listen to that prophet will be cut off from the people. It's uh, a smelting process. The dross is being removed. Those who would listen to the prophet are being purified. Those who don't listen to the prophet are the slag or the dross that's being removed. The fire of my wrath is doing it. Um, Malachi 3 is, is worth noting right here. Malachi, of course, is that prophet that uh, prophesies uh, the soon coming of John the Baptist, uh, who will announce then the, the approach of Jesus, the messenger of the covenant. That's verse 1 of Malachi 3. He's coming. Um, but there are a lot of people. Malachi's writing to a boy, hope the Lord comes soon. And he says, to what, uh, to what purpose will that be for you? He's coming as a, as, a, as a purifier. Verse 2, who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. And he will sit as a smelter and purifier of silver. And he will purify the sons of Levi, refine them like gold and silver, so that they may present to Yahweh offerings in righteousness. We're going to get rid of your dross. We're going to get rid of your uncleanness. That's why Peter, in 1 Peter chapter 1, can talk about the fiery trial which was among them at the time, or soon to be upon them at the time uh, Peter wrote, or was among them when Peter wrote. He says in verse 6, 1 Peter 1, 6, in this, that is, salvation which is ready to be revealed, in this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been distressed by various trials, that the proof of your faith, more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So there were, there were people that Peter was writing to, they were about to go through this smelting and would come out purified when Jesus came. And so uh, uh, that's what e Ezekiel is talking about here. You do well to keep those two passages, Malachi 3, 1 through 3, and 1 Peter 1, 6 and 7, in mind when you think about this uh, uh, picture of smelting ore and getting rid of the dross. All right. In verse 24, Son of man, say to her that you are a land that your land is not cleansed, you are a land that is not cleansed or rained on in the day of indignation. In other, in other words, nothing has come to wash away your sin. So there's a conspiracy of her prophets. We're going to notice her prophets, her priests, her princes, her prophets again, and her people. The, the four Ps of the Judean society, the prophets, priests, princes, and people. And so here's the prophets, they would say anything. They devour lives. They would say anything for money. Get in their way, they'll run over you. They'll make a case against you. The prophets, preaching for pay, will do anything for money. The priests, uh, they've done violence to my law. They, he lists about six things uh, regarding the priests. They did violence to the law. They, they made the holy, they turned the holy into common, ordinary stuff. They did not distinguish uh, between right and wrong, between pure and impure. And they didn't instruct the uh, the people how to make that same distinction. They ignored the Sabbath, and they treated God, Yahweh, as just common. So the priest, who should have been there for the purpose of elevating the people in their consciousness of Yahweh and His purity, actually uh, did exactly the opposite. The princes were like ravening wolves, and so the leaders abused their legal power to get rich. They had they had the power of the court, they had the power of the military, and they abused it for the purpose of just lining their pockets. And the prophets, who should have been speaking out against these abuses, smeared the public uh, ills with whitewash. Uh, it, it, it didn't solve the problem, it just made them feel good about being in a problem. The people of the land practiced oppression and committed robbery. So like princes, like prophets, 
So the people, they, they, they practice the same, oppressing everybody of a lower class than they were, and so that the sojourner had no justice. And so God says, I went out looking for anybody, and I found nobody. I found no one, is what he said there in the end of verse 30. I thought of, uh, I thought of Noah in uh, Genesis 6 at verse 8, when God was so, uh, uh, so displeased with the, uh, the, that early covenant world that he was ready to destroy them lock, stock, and barrel. It says, Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Well, here there wasn't anybody that found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Fortunately, in the days of Jesus, through the preaching of the apostles, a good number of people found their way into the ark of Jesus, and they found grace in the eyes of the Lord. But here, I don't find anybody, he's saying. Their way I have brought upon their heads. Now, in uh, verse 4, that that's the last verse of, of, of the Bible, I just uh, or of chapter 22, which I just read. Now, compare that to verse 4. Here, in this final verse, verse 31, he says, Their way I have brought upon their heads. In verse uh, 4, he says, Thus you have brought your day near. So they made choices, and here God made the consequence secure. And so that's an interesting contrast. There's 31 and verse 4. You brought your way, I've brought your way upon your head. All right. On into chapter 23. I do wish that caller would call back and have a little chat here. Uh, but as we turn into chapter 23, we have uh, a story about two women, Ohala and Oholiba. He says these are there there are two women, they were the daughters of one mother, they played the harlot in Egypt. I've been doing some reading with a couple of uh, fellows during the week in the book of Joshua. In Joshua <clears throat> excuse me, Joshua chapter twenty four. This is Joshua's uh final appeal, final plea to the people. Make a choice. Uh, he says here in uh in, in chapter twenty four in verse 14, he says, Now therefore fear Yahweh, and serve him in sincerity and truth, and put away the gods which your fathers served beyond the river. Now that would be up in the, uh, up at Haran, where, where uh, God called Abraham uh, to come leave his father's house there. They left the Ur of the Chaldees, settled in Haran, and then when daddy died, God called him out of that. I called you to leave the gods of your fathers. So now he's calling upon the people to put those gods away. That, that, that's kind of a telling statement. They still had the gods. They were still carrying around and honoring in their hearts the gods that God called Abraham to leave their forefather all those years ago. He says, put away the gods which your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt. And so they served gods in Egypt perhaps the gods of Egypt, or perhaps the same gods they serve beyond the river, that, that is the Euphrates. Either way, they still had them in the days of Joshua. Put them away, he says, and serve the Lord. Here, God says in Ezekiel 23, he says, they played the harlot in Egypt. This, that's what Ezekiel, or, or Joshua was talking about in Joshua 24:14. Put away the gods which your father served in Egypt. Uh, they played the harlot in Egypt. These two women, uh, they played the harlot in their youth. Their names were Ohola, Ohala and Oholiba. Ohala, the elder, Oholiba, her sister. Now, Ohala means her tent, and Oholiba means my tent is in her. What an interesting pair of names. And he goes on to say, Samaria is Ohala, Jerusalem is Oholiba. So Samaria, remember, <clears throat> broke away after the death of uh, Solomon. The ten northern tribes broke away from Rehoboam, broke away from the house of David, uh, and said, uh, we're, we, what portion do we have in the house of David? And they went up, and they made their own house. They made their own line of kings. Actually, God appointed uh, Jeroboam to be king. But then they made their own worship. They made their own house. They made their own place for God Yahweh to be worshipped. So 
her house. God didn't say it's my house. He says it's her house. Then he says of Jerusalem, my house is in her. So my house is there. Uh, It's interesting when Jesus in Matthew 23 uh, pronounces condemnation, final, ultimate removal type of condemnation upon this city. He says, behold, your house is left to you desolate. It was no longer Yahweh's house. Uh, The temple was Yahweh's house. We saw in chapters 8, 9, and 10, we saw the glory of Yahweh departing from that temple so that it could be destroyed, which is exactly what Jesus was talking about in Matthew 23. Your house is left to you desolate. What do you mean? Look at these great stones. I'm telling you, not one stone that is left here that will not be torn uh, one from another. Um, And they said, when? He says, in this generation. So, her house... My house is in her. But when God left his house, the house in Jerusalem was just as empty as the house in Samaria. But that's who we're talking about here, these two women. Ohala, he said, played the harlot while she was mine. While she was his. You remember that God entered into a covenant of marriage with the nation, uh, with the, the, the two factions. He entered into a covenant with them when he brought them out of Egypt. But she lusted after her lovers, the Assyrians. Okay, now, what we're going to do here with Ohala is just kind of a summary statement. Here's what she was. She was mine. She lusted for the Assyrians. She went after them. That The idea is turn to the Assyrians for protection. Uh, perhaps even, as, as we see, uh, one of the kings doing, uh, so admired the great altar that he saw that he came back and built one just like it. Uh, so maybe uh, lusting after uh, and to emulate, lusting to emulate their worship, their 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 god system, their their religion. But she lusted after them. Well, what happened? Down in verse nine, I gave her into the hands of her lovers. Ten, they uncovered her nakedness. They slew her with the sword. Thus she became a byword among the women, and they executed judgments on her. Please notice. All of these verbs in verses 9 and 10 are past tense. That is, they've already happened. Israel had already, 100 years ago, gone into captivity. The The point is, verse uh, 11, now her sister Oholibah saw. She saw what happened to her sister. She saw that the... Assyrians came in and that alliance with the Assyrians was useless and and ultimately she was hauled off captive. And she saw that the the prophets preaching to her uh, accomplished no value. The the false prophets' words didn't come true and the true prophets' words were ignored. And Judah saw all this. Now, a wise person will see something that's like what he's doing and see the outcome of it and not like the outcome and change what he's doing. But that's not what Oholibah did. She saw, and yet she was more corrupt. Well, in in what way was she more corrupt? Was it that she was at it a hundred years longer and thus increased her corruption? Was that she learned to be sneaky about it? Compare this with Jeremiah 3, verses 6 through 11 especially, where the same comparison is made. There, uh, Jeremiah says, that Jerusalem saw what was what had happened to Samaria, and rather than repenting in earnest, she pretended to repent while she maintained. And in other words, she she took it to a secret, sneaky level. And so maybe that is maybe that's what she means. More corrupt, she was more deceptive about it. Maybe as you look through the text, verses twelve and again in fourteen. She lusted after the Assyrians, and she saw the images of the Chaldeans. Maybe she's more corrupt because she had twice as many lovers, the Assyrians and the Chaldeans. I'm not sure which. Maybe it's some of all of these. Nevertheless, verse 17 says the Chaldeans came to her bed of love and defiled her with their harlotry. This is <clears throat> this is very strong strong and graphic language of the 
intimate relationship depicted that exists between a man and a wife, here taking place between a wife and her lover, the cable man that comes, for example, during the day, uh, or the plumber, or, you know, whoever. Um, but he's really talking about the intimacy that, ex that was to exist between the hearts of the nation and God was now being given over to the Babylonians. And so he says, I became disgusted with her as I had become disgusted with her sister. Uh, again, she should have learned, but she multiplied her harlotries. Therefore, he says, down here in verse 22, Therefore, O Aholibah, thus says the Lord Yahweh, Behold, I will arouse your lovers against you. So something's going to go sour in the relationship, and you're not going to be able to stand. They're going to hate you. They're going to come after you, and it will be because of me. Verse 23, the Babylonians, all the Chaldeans, uh, Pekad, Shoah, and Koah, all the Assyrians, all of them, say, they're coming after you. Verse 24, they will set themselves against you on every side. Verse 25, I will set my jealousy against you. Look at the parallel there. The encampment, the besiegement that is made by this foreign empire was God setting his jealousy against them. They were, as it were, a puppet in his hand doing his will. This very, very interesting uh, picture of this thing in the book of Revelation, of this, of this kind of thing. In chapters 12, 13, and 14, in, in end of 12, we see uh, a dragon standing on the sand of the, uh, of the seashore. In other words, standing at where the land and the sea met. The sea represents the, the Gentile nations, primarily Rome. The land represented Israel. Um, and where, where they met, the beast was there controlling both. Controlling the, the, the beast that arose from the sea, which I believe is Rome, the beast which arose from the land, which I believe was the um, uh, abusive religious power of, of uh, Judah. Uh, the, these two were like hand puppets on um, Satan. They, that's what they appear to be in the book of Revelation, uh, to attack God's church. And yet, they ended up Rome attacking uh, uh, Jerusalem. The earth, he says in verse 12, helped the woman in that she swallowed, uh, in that she opened her mouth and swallowed everything the dragon sent toward the woman. The dragon was angry with the woman, but the earth helped the land. The, the nation of Israel helped the woman by swallowing up all the ferocity that Satan, the, the Roman Empire, through the Roman Empire, sending at him. Now, the point I'm making is, here it looks like these empires are puppets on the hand of Satan. But the reality is, God was using the Roman Empire to destroy uh, Jerusalem. God set his wrath against her. And so Satan wasn't in control, even though it looked like he was. God was in control. Even so here, they will set themselves up against you, Verse 24, verse 25, I will set my jealousy against you. It was God at work in the Babylonian uh, siege of Jerusalem, even as it would be in the time to come God at work in the Roman siege of Jerusalem. Okay? He says, my jealousy against you that they may deal with you in wrath. Yahweh's jealousy was poured out in the nation's wrath against his people who did not trust him. So, the nations got upset because of the betrayal, the um, violating of covenant and all of the irritations the Jews brought. They brought it because they had Yahweh on their side in the temple and they couldn't be destroyed. Yahweh was upset because they polluted the temple. He let the nations destroy him. That's kind of an interesting play there. Down in verse 27, Thus I will make your lewdness and your harlotry from the land of Egypt to cease from you. I want to stress again, that the, uh, the scattering and the, um, the besiegement, the invasion uh, of Jerusalem was not for the purpose of destroying 
but for the purpose of purifying. Yeah, we'll destroy the corrupt, but we're going to purify what remains. It would, this, and this is what it would take to purify his people from their pollution or from their abominations. Down to verse 29. They will deal with you in hatred, take all your property, and leave you naked and bare. Isn't this interesting? God brought, <clears throat> back in uh, chapter 16, he brought uh, his nation out of Egypt, and she was naked and bare, and he clothed her. He entered into a covenant of marriage with her, brought her into a land where she could prosper. Now, because she has broken that covenant of marriage and turned against him, these people that she thought would protect and provide for her will strip her naked and leave her bare. Leave her just like she was before God came to her rescue. Now that she's abandoned God, she's right back where she was. That's kind of an interesting thought, isn't it? Abandon God, and you're right back where you were. Verse 30, <clears throat> he says, These things will be done to you because you have played the harlot with the nations, because you have defiled yourself with idols. Again, abandon Yahweh and face the nations on your own. The way of your sister, therefore, I will give... Um, uh, See, so you have walked in the way of your sister, therefore I will give her cup into your hand. This, perhaps, is one of the most pathetic things that can be said in this chapter, because he starts off saying uh, that Ohalah had been taken captive. That it had been. And and so you should have learned from what happened to her. So, But instead of learning what happened to her, you get to replay what happened to her. I will give her cup into your hand, and you will drink your sister's cup. He goes on to say in verse 32, to drink her cup. Cup here is clearly referring to the foreign assault, clearly referring to all the horrors uh, of the assault that was to come. Imagine getting drunk on wine and, and the staggering and, and the vomiting and the falling down and the damage that can be done. He says that's how people would feel emotionally. They'd get drunk on what was happening, um, not for uh, re, re, escape, but drunk in, in their inability to, to make any rational decisions, their head reeling, uh, and so you're going to drink that cup. It's going to be the cup of my wrath that you will drink. You will drink your sister's cup. I'd like you to compare this with uh, Revelation uh, 16. In Revelation 16, and at verse 19, uh, this is what uh, we read concerning uh, Jerusalem. And the great city, I believe throughout the book of uh, Revelation, the great city is the city Jerusalem. That, the one that was destroyed in A.D. 70, not the New Jerusalem. The great city was split into three, and the cities of the nations fell in Babylon. The great, and Babylon the great is the great city, was remembered before God to give her the cup of the wine of his fierce wrath. We're going to come back and, and uh, well, it says... Um, <clears throat> We're going to come back and talk to that about that, but we're going to come back and talk about that right now. The rest of this verse in Ezekiel says, You will be laughed at and held in derision if, that is, the cup contains much. It contains much. <clears throat> A couple thoughts on this one. I'll keep your finger there in Revelation 16 because we're coming back to 17. But first of all, in Matthew 23, Matthew 23, as Jesus is talking, woe, condemnation, uh, the, the series of woes upon the scribes and Pharisees, he says in verse 32, fill up in the measure of your fathers. We've got a cup of guilt that's being filled. Now, when that cup of guilt is filled, then you're going to drink it. In Revelation uh, 6, and before we get to 17, in, in Revelation 6, the question came uh, in, in when the fifth seal was broken, they cried out in verse 9, How long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And the answer was, you have to wait a little while until the cup is filled. He didn't say until the cup is filled. He says until your fellow servants and their brothers who were to be killed, even as you, they had been, should be con completed also. We haven't quite finished filling up the measure of your guilt from Matthew twenty-three thirty-two. So we've got a cup that's being filled, and then once it's filled, it's going to be drunk. In in 
chapter 17 now of Revelation, verse 4, And the woman was clothed in purple and scarlet and adorned. This is the woman, the Babylon the Great. This is the city Jerusalem. She's riding on the back of the beast. She's riding on Rome. She's not Rome. She's Jerusalem. Adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, having in her hand a gold cup full of abominations and the unclean things of her fornication. And so she's got that cup, and she's about to drink it. Down in, in verse um, 16, it says, And the horns which you saw, and the beast, these will hate the harlot, and will make her desolate and naked, and will eat her flesh, and will burn her up with fire. So she's got the cup in her hand, and she's about to be destroyed. That's the picture that Ezekiel is painting here. Uh, <clears throat> you're going to drink your sister's cup. It contains much. Now, Matthew 23 clearly states that upon the generation Jesus was living in, the Father's guilt would be filled up by their activities. Let me go back there to Matthew 23 and, and read this a little bit more. In verse 32, he says, fill up then the measure of your fathers. So you're going to fill up their measure. Uh, in verse 34, I'm sending you prophets and wise men and scribes. Some of them you will kill and crucify. Some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city that upon you may fall all the righteous bloodshed on the earth. So even though the cup that Oholibah was about to drink contained much, this was not the complete and final wrath of God. The, the This was a purging wrath. This was a get rid of the dross wrath. Uh, there was a, but it didn't, it didn't, the cup wasn't full. Uh, the cup of God's anger, the, the cup of their sin wasn't filled until the generation of Jesus. All right, enough about that. Let's press on here. Back in Ezekiel, 23 and verse 35. Therefore, thus says the Lord Yahweh, because you have forgotten me and cast me behind your back, now bear your lewdness and your harlotries. Oh, look at this. The inevitable consequence of forsaking God and may or making God go away is lewdness. The inevitable consequence of abandoning God is to go into lewdness, and then that leads to punishment. Uh, let, I mean, Oholibah had her eyes closed to what her sister Ohola did and suffered. Let us keep our eyes wide open to see that abandoning God leads to lewdness, and lewdness leads to punishment. Verse 37. They have committed a, a, adultery, and blood is on their hands. These are the two things that God is, throughout this chapter, charging them with. Uh, uh, adultery and blood. They've committed adultery with their idols. They've caused their sons whom they bore to me to pass through the fire to them as food. So this is idolatry, but this is also murder. And then more than that, they've defiled my sanctuary on the same day. So get this. They, they go out and worship this pagan god and murder their children to it. And then they come into the house of Yahweh on the same day. And it might even be a Sabbath day. And so they've, they've done the work of... of slaughtering their children on a Sabbath day, and then they come and worship God in his house. For when they had slaughtered their children to, for their idols, they entered my sanctuary on the same day to profane it. And lo, thus they did within my house. They did the same thing there. <clears throat> that, uh, that, that would be like a, a woman going out and having a tryst with her lover and then coming home the, the, the same day and making love to her husband. It's just an abomination. This is the picture God has used. God has consistently, these are his wives that he's describing this way. Down in verse 41, he says, You sat on a splendid couch with a table arranged before it on which you had set my incense and my oil. Now, this is a minor point, but it's a major point because it, it focuses on the uh, abandonment uh, of, of God, forsaking of God. In Exodus 30, verse 18, this holy oil, God said, if any layman uses it, he shall be cut off from his people. This was special to God, to be used only for God. And yet here they are, spreading it out before the emissaries from these other nations. You can see how God could be 
uh, ticked off at, at what's going on here. In verse uh, 45, but they, righteous men, will judge them. That is, the four nations, righteous men, will judge Ohala and Oholibah with the judgment of adulteresses and with the judgment of women who shed blood. Now, what is the judgment of an adulteress or of a woman who sheds blood? To be stoned to death. Look down at verse 47. The company will stone them with stones and cut them down with swords. The nation is going to be destroyed for her adultery and for her murder. It says in 45, righteous men. I think by comparison um, or in the action against Jerusalem. In, in other words, they were, they were acting righteously as they executed God's judgment on Jerusalem. They, they were not outside. They, it wasn't an, an ungodly, unrighteous thing to do because the nation deserved to be punished. Thus they will know that I am Yahweh. And that brings us now, with about 14 minutes left, 12 uh, minutes or so, to chapter 24. Let's see what we can do about chapter 24. And the word of Yahweh came to me in the ninth year, in the tenth month, on the tenth of the month. And if we go to um, 2 Kings 25 and look at verse 1, uh, we'll see the exact same date. And it came about in the ninth year of his reign, on the tenth day of the tenth month, that Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came, he and all, all his army against Jerusalem, camped against it, and built a siege wall all around it. And so, from the ninth year of uh, Zedekiah's reign, uh, the ninth year, the tenth month, and the tenth day of the month, until the eleventh year uh, of his reign, Jerusalem was under siege. And so we have here in Ezekiel 24 the very day that the besiegement started. You might remember uh, <clears throat> back in chapter uh, 21, we had Nebuchadnezzar coming to the parting of the ways, casting the lots to see whether he should go to Rabbah or to Jerusalem, and the lot fell to Jerusalem. Here now we see on the very day that he approached Jerusalem, this message came to uh, Ezekiel. He says, speak a parable to a rebellious house. This is another phrase that keeps coming up in the book of Ezekiel. The idea that Jerusalem was a rebellious people. Okay, so we're going to have a parable. Uh, why do you speak to them in parables? The uh, disciples wondered in Matthew 13. And Jesus' answer was, because they got hard hearts. Those who want to hear will figure it out. Those who don't want to hear will have a reason to uh, reject it. And so it was to divide the people into the keepers and the throwers away. Um, so we're going to speak a parable to these people. Some of them will get it and change their thinking. Some of them will laugh at it and keep on thinking of the same old thoughts. But put on a pot. Now the picture we have here, beginning in verse 3, halfway through 3, put on a pot, put on the pot, is a, a picture of sacrifice that they would uh, boil uh, the meat of uh, the, the, the animal that had been, whose entrails had been burned up on the altar. They would boil the meat in a pot and then take out, and here's the priest part and so forth. And so this is a picture of uh, a sacrifice made to Yahweh that the, the meat then would be consumed by the sacrificer, uh, both the priest who did it and sometimes the uh, sacrificer himself. But, verse 6, Yahweh says, Woe to the bloody city, to the pot. Okay, now the parable is being described here. We have the pot is the city, but it's not just a plain, clean, pure city in which sacrifice and offerings to God are being made purely. It's a bloody city. It's a, a city <clears throat> whose uh, rust has not gone out of it. So, the, the pot is rusty. The pot is not pure. It's an unclean pot. The sacrifice is spoiled through the uncleanness of the pot, as the picture. Verse 7, her blood is in her midst. Aha, the bloody city, the rust, the murder, the murder at the pagan altars, the abandonment of me that led to corruption in, in their hearts, which led to violence and murder, even murder in sacrifice. She did not pour it on the ground. She placed it on a bare rock. Pour, pour blood out on a rock. Everybody can see it. 
poured in the dust of the ground and it absorbs into the ground. The waters come. And this is God's way of describing either blatantly keeping murder on the books. It's murder. People have done it, but we're not doing anything about it. Put it on the bare rock. Or somebody murders somebody and society rises up and covers that murder. Now, how do you cover a murder? Go all the way back to Genesis 9. If any man sheds a man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed. That's what God said to do. Get rid of murder by taking the life of the murderer. Make the murderer pay the exact cost that he took. Make him pay with life. That covers the blood. Now, she didn't cover the blood. She didn't pour it on the ground to cover it with dust. That it may cause wrath to come. Now, I'm not here preaching about capital punishment and the death penalty, but what I am saying is a society that does not respect human life to the point where they'll just let anybody take it with abandon without costing them anything is a society that is destined for the wrath of God. So it was here. So it was here. And that's why he could say in verse 9, woe to the bloody city. This word woe as we've described before, is not pronouncing judgment, but it is exclaiming of the consequence of an inevitable tragedy. I might see uh, a bus, <clears throat> like just happened here last week, uh, went off the, uh, what they call it, dead man's pass, just out of uh, Pendleton, Oregon. A bus slid off the snowy slopes. Nine people were killed. What if I were there and watched the bus go off the edge? I would say, oh, no. Now, that's not me making the bus go off the edge or pronouncing judgment to cause the bus to go off the edge. It's just me exclaiming of what I know is going to be the consequence of the bus going off the edge. Here's a city that is not taking care of the murder within it, letting it go, letting it run rampant. Um, woe to the bloody city. Oh, no. Oh, no, you can't make that choice. It's going to lead you to destruction. That's the picture here. Woe to the bloody city. In verse 11, as he goes down to the, the woe to the bloody sea, the, the fire is going to be heated up. I mean, we've got rust in this pot. We've got to burn the rust out. Look what he says here in verse 11. Then set it empty, the pot, on its coals, so that it may be hot, and its bronze may glow, and its filthiness may be melted in it, its rust consumed. Again, notice the purpose of Yahweh's judgment and wrath was not to destroy and annihilate, but to purify. Again, those who would follow him would have the bad attitudes removed. Those who would not follow him would be removed with their bad attitudes. So, <clears throat> that's the point. Uh, <clears throat> verse 12 says, She has wearied me with toil, yet her great rust has not gone out from her. I think the toil is the rigors of offering sacrifices. That's the picture here. Sacrifices that are not doing the job. There's rust in the pot. There's rust in the pot. How can you offer a pleasing sacrifice to God when the pot is defiled? I'm going to empty the pot, set it on its coals. I'm not going to accept your sacrifices anymore. I'm going to set the pot on the coals as Jerusalem in the fire, and I'm going to burn away the rust. That's the idea. You'll... Verse, he says <clears throat> down here at the end of verse 13, you will not be cleansed from your filthiness again until I have spent my wrath on you. Whoa, if, if that's not eschatological, I don't know what is. I'm going to cleanse you from your rust one more time when I spend my wrath on you. You're not going to have it again. Going to ha and the, the again is in reference to what was about to happen to him now the Babylonian captivity, the Babylonian siege. You're not going to have your rust removed again until I pour out my wrath on you. And so John came warning people to flee from the wrath that was about to come, Matthew 3. And so just take that and, and remember the point of the siege, the point of the heat of God's anger was to purify Malachi 3 and 1 Peter 1 again. Let me read this next uh, verse, uh, verse uh, 14. 
Yahweh, I, Yahweh, have spoken. It is coming, and I will act. I will not relent, and I will not pity, and I will not be sorry. According to your ways and according to your deeds, I will judge you. I'm not, I, I can't let myself relent out of pity because I need to purify my people, I think is the point he's making. Now, at this point, Jeremiah's wife, or Ezekiel's wife, dies. God says, I'm about to take away your wife. I don't want you to cry. I don't want you to weep. I don't want your tears. Uh, you can groan inwardly, but make no mourning. Bind a turban on, put your feet on, just go out and live life as normal. So I spoke to the people, he says in verse 18 in the morning, and in the evening, my wife died. And in the morning I did as I had been commanded. The people came and said to us, verse 19, Will you not tell us what these things that you are doing mean for us? <laughs> By now the people got the picture that Ezekiel's pantomimes uh, and skits had a meaning for them. They want to know what this is. And so God opened his mouth and said, well, I'm about to <clears throat> I'm about to profane my sanctuary, the pride of your power. People thought they were strong because they had the temple. God says, I'm about to profane it. The desire of your eyes, the delight of your soul. And your sons and your daughters whom you have left uh before will behind will fall by the sword. God says, I'm about to get rid of the temple. And and so you're going to do as I've done. When the temple falls, and your children die, the calamity will be so great that all you'll do is groan inwardly. You won't make any any outward um, mourning or manifestation of mourning. Verse 24, Thus Ezekiel will be assigned to you. According to all that he has done, you will do. When it comes, then you will know that I am Yahweh. Let me read this last paragraph. As for you, son of man... Will it not be on the day when I take from them their stronghold, the joy of their pride, the desire of their eyes, and their heart's delight, their sons and their daughters? On that day, he who escapes will come to you with information for ears. Now, I want to comment just briefly on this. The, <clears throat> the stronghold, the, the joy of their pride, these were people in, in captivity, but as long as Jerusalem stood, and the temple especially stood, that was to them their hope of returning. When the Jews, when the temple fell, their hope was dashed, and they would then take Jeremiah's Jeremiah's message seriously. You're going to be here for seventy years. Back to Ezekiel, verse twenty-seven. On that day, your mouth will be opened to him who escaped, and you will be mute, and you will speak and be mute no longer. Thus, you will be assigned to them. So. This whole time that Ezekiel was in captivity, from the time he first went till the time that the temple is destroyed and message comes, he can only speak when God opens his mouth. But as soon as the temple is destroyed, then he'll be free to open his mouth. Next week, we're going to take up the, um, the messages to the surrounding nations, starting in chapter 25. We'll go as far as we get. Uh, but for now, this is Rod saying, Boy, I'm glad you were here today. Uh, again, let me give you my uh, address. It's uh, R-O-D underscore M-A-C-A-R-T-H-U-R at dot net. You can contact me there or you can go to our church website, www.churchofauburn.com and you can t contact me through there. A lot of juicy information, free information and uh, things that you might be interested in, not of an eschatological nature, just good, solid, daily living stuff. Thanks for being with me. Uh, come again next week. Whoever is wise, let him understand these things. Whoever is discerning, let him know them. For the ways of Yahweh are right, and the righteous will walk in them, but transgressors will stumble in them. For the past hour, you've been listening to Probing the Prophets with Rod MacArthur. Stay tuned each Friday from 11 a.m. Central until noon for Probing the Prophets with Rod MacArthur, right here on Fulfill Radio, a voice you can trust. <laughs>